Welcome to the Bardic College Behind the Screen. I'm Rich. I'm Raz. And with the Behind the Screens podcast, what we'll be doing is speaking with your DMs, GMs, keepers, storytellers, and all those people who help bring your tabletop game to life. Yeah, we're uh, our goal here is to not just talk about the big systems, but also the small ones. Um, in a world where there's, you know, Facebook pages for groups and everything else, it's those little games, the old the old classics and the new ones that are trying to come out uh, where people have a, you know, are really counting on that GM to provide that experience because it may be the only game in town for them. So we're going to try to find those guys as well and talk to them about what they do to get ready for sessions in any type of system from D and D where people know the rules tremendously well to something new. Like we tried on our, our show with hell with Hellboy. Um, it's all about just getting to inside the DMS heads and learning, not just their process, but tips to help you guys get better. That's right. We're not going to try and give you all the information you need to run your game. What we're going to do is allow you to hear other voices and other opinions because, let's face it, every game master runs their game differently. Yep. I mean, I've already picked up some great tips in the pre-recorded discussions we had with our first guest, and I'm hoping some of what he has to say and some of what we respond to him with will be things that resonate with you and that you can bring back to your players and your game. If it's the whole, it's the that's the way we all get better. Um, we all borrow bits and pieces and bobs from everybody else. Um, you know, they, it's been said in literature a thousand times. Every story has been told. It's just reshaping it to make it yours. And that's uh, that's a big part of it. So, yeah, this is uh, this is a chance for all of us, especially us, to learn how to get the craft just to be better, which uh, which I think everybody wants. So. So, yes, if you know anybody who runs their own role-playing game and they'd like to share some of their tips and secrets from behind the screen, we'll have our Facebook, Twitter, and email information at the end of this podcast. But I think that's enough about us for now, and let's get to our first guest. We're speaking with Sebastian King. Yep. He is a dungeon master from the UK, and uh, well, let's not beat around the bush. Let's jump right into the first question. So, Seb, how often is your group meeting? Uh, so we tend to vary our scheduling times based on when everyone is available. It's not like we have a set date that everyone does it like each week, um, but it tends to vary somewhere between like two to three weeks per session, um, and that's where we try to fit in as much as we can uh, in terms of a span of time. Um, they normally tend to range between, say, four to maybe six hours uh Sometimes even more, depending on how much fun we're having. Yeah, I mean, I've been running games now for, well, I'm not going to give an exact year because I'm not going to date myself, but four decades um, that I've been running games. And I find I can't even do that that eight-hour-plus session uh, unless it's like a special event. Yeah, I can understand that. And there is certainly a level of that. Um but there are some times where maybe you don't get as much done as you anticipated, uh, because I, I, I don't know if you guys find this, uh, certainly in an online setting, but in uh, person, I find that my games are a little bit more chilled out, uh, because there's more breathing room for people to get up, maybe do something else that they need to do, like order food, um, or they want to like discuss something else, whilst also semi-paying attention at the table. Um, especially within combat, uh, because within combat, obviously, it's one turn at a time, and you're not always engaging everyone. So when you do combat, um, 
do you do you prefer having you know all the minis out and your your table set up and you know terrain on the board or are you a draw it on a uh dry erase graph um and whatever figures available is good well, hold on a minute. Can I just jump in? We're talking to a gentleman from the UK. That's the that's the <laughs> land of mini with 40K. If he's not putting minis on the table, I'm shocked because <laughs> because that is the kingdom of minis over there as far right. as I'm concerned. Hang on. Let, let, let me walk you back a bit, right? Um, <laughs> when, I was, when I first started doing this, um, and this is going to sound quite painful to possibly some of the like, listeners' ears here, um, my solution to not having minis was to take pre-existing Magic the Gathering cards and cut uh, one to one and a half inch uh, discs out of the face of the cards for the card art. And I love that idea. Um, it, it was brilliant. Uh, and to be honest, I still have so many of them just in case, for whatever reason, uh, I'm not able to like 3D print a mini or something like that. But at this current stage in time, yes, um, I am fully on board with getting as many minis onto that uh, like play area, if you wish, uh, as possible. The downside is that I wish I had more physical terrain. Um, I am in the process of eventually 3D printing different forms of terrain at the moment, uh, more so focusing on like landmarks, like trees, bushes, and such. Um, but at the moment, I'm sticking to a dry erase board, uh, but I am using like various different minis. I've even got um, a clear uh, like set of stands uh, that you can like see through, and they're all like one inch squared, and like you can take them apart, and that just basically allows you to do like aerial combat or underwater combat without worrying about that height distance. Um. So, uh, you're you're three D printing all your pieces. Um, or starting to, and uh, are we getting these painted, or? Uh, the plan is definitely to get them painted. Uh, at the moment, a lot of them have spray base coats, uh, and I've like got a small notebook with like what I tend to, or what I want to try and uh, paint them in, uh, like what design I'm going for. Um, now, sorry, Zeb, do you, no, I'm, I didn't mean to, I thought, for a pause there but are your players also invested or do, or do you find they bring minis to the table or are you get you basically providing as a, a full service dm sort of thing where you're providing everything and they're just showing up with pen and paper uh no no uh, one of my players uh well technically two um they're in a relationship uh they are heavily invested in painting miniatures and okay. like having their own um to a brilliant uh, example of this is actually a gelatinous cube uh, they managed to get themselves uh, one of these cubes and you can undo the bottom and it's hollow on the inside so you can actually put it over other players minis and like have them be inside the cube and <laughs> that I, I i love that idea but yeah they're fully invested they're fully invested in um having that kind of uh experience behind their own belt as well as like allowing me to do what kind of customizations I need to. Um, more often than not, they even offer to paint my own. Nice. Yeah, that's always nice. I mean, I always end up painting my own and, you know, I'm I'm not a fast painter. I can do a decent yeah. job, but I am not fast. And it would take me a day to do each mini. And if I'm doing, you know, some kind of uh, scenario where there's going to be a lot of an enemy 
you know, a lot of goblins or a lot of orcs to try and, you know, spend three weeks just getting them all painted up so I can have 10 of them cross the board. Not something I look forward to. Yeah, it's a certainly a lot of uh, investment for like such a small moment in time. Uh, and to be honest, in some respects, I do appreciate that and I, I do want to do it anyway. But finding that like work-life balance and being able to put enough time in to get like those particular minis ready isn't always necessarily practical. So what I've taken to doing uh, as a result of that is getting the like party miniatures or NPCs that might be with the party, getting their miniatures painted uh, so that they are used, dedicated on every single session, and then using enemy miniatures as either uh, just their uncoated uh, versions or uh, giving them a, a base coat. Either way, they stand out in a single color, so it's easy for it, uh, for the players to recognize when they have, for example, a group of allies or a group of enemies near them. So there was there was one question that that Raz had that I'm going to jump in and and ask. So we know we know D and D, but are there any other tabletop RPGs that you play or you're looking to play? Um, there are a couple of other like tabletop board games and things like that that we uh, certainly own and have owned for a little while. Uh, we recently actually picked up the Small World of Warcraft, um, which has been advertised as part of the like World of Warcraft uh, lore, um, but is based on a slightly different system. Uh, but for the most part, um, whilst I'm aware of uh, different versions such as, uh, oh god, my names are escaping me now. Uh, one moment. <laughs> uh, okay, I can remember one of them. I can't remember the other one. Oh, okay. Are you talking about RPG systems? Yeah, just give me a Call of Cthulhu. Uh, yeah, there's a hundred yeah. of them out there. Anyone? Yeah. Pathfinder. Pathfinder. Like, yeah. Just went, <laughs> yeah, no worries. <laughs> there was one in particular that I was trying to remember. Obviously, I could remember Pathfinder. That cropped into my head. Um, but for the life of me, I can only remember um, uh, a series that it was used on in terms of online. Uh, just bear with me a second. Sure. Uh, and I will find it. Um, All right. While you're looking... Um, you are you're running a homebrew world. That's correct. So, why, why homebrew versus uh, an established setting? Ah, um, that's actually a really good question for me because I always found that uh, an established setting is a lot of information to try and bring in and like take on and remember, and it was a lot easier for me as a storyteller to just go hey, this is the story I've created, this is this world I've created, these are, like, this is how it looks, this is how it feels, this is how I'm describing it to you, have at it. Because then it puts more emphasis on the players, at least in my mind, the players in their uh, exploration of that, like, fantasy world, more so than you going, oh, but this is what the book says if that makes sense. Do you find that that players, if there's an established setting where they can go and, and pick up source books, will start like 
trying to pull out lore that their character doesn't know, but they've read someplace. Yes. And then trying to pull that in. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I'd say so. Yeah, that's definitely one way of putting it. Yeah, I'm running a, I run a historical campaign um, based in 1931. And yeah. I have to tell you there, I have to fact check and double fact check because I have two players in the game specifically that are history files. And they've literally, I've had to cut out whole conversations in the middle of the podcast going, I realized that, you know, the Blundfund was not in Berlin in 1931 in October, but shut up, it's there. Like, you know, I just, you got to leave it there because that's where I'm putting it. So yeah, I totally get your idea of that homebrew gives you the ability to control so many, much, so much more of the elements without having to spend so much time, you know, diving into the lore. Uh, yeah. that's, that's a big thing. Yeah. As a, a, another point that I'd put across, um, what are the chances that one of your players, certainly if they're a little bit more experienced with D&D &D perhaps, uh, would have knowledge of the campaign that you're running? Um, because with uh, a homebrew campaign like mine, you end up just being like, oh, okay, I'm just going to pluck these creatures out of thin air because they fit the scenario. Here you go. <laughs> Now, with, with your homebrew campaign, do you do a lot of homebrew creations as well as far as uh, creatures or magic or spells? I do, actually. Um, I've not really touched so much in terms of spells or, like, features or, like, any of the, like, class-based stuff. That that kind of stuff has stayed remotely fundamental uh, to the, like, books. However, when it comes to monsters and certainly items as well, hell yeah, I've had at that. Um I actually uh, used in a bit of a, a dungeon crawl. Um, I took the dwarven, uh, like centurion, and the dwarven spheres, and like those kind of creatures from, uh, I believe it's Elder Scrolls, uh, like Skyrim, that kind of universe, and just moved them over to D and D, and they work fabulously. Uh, because when you're crawling through like an ancient city and you see this massive mechanical lumbering hulk of a creature come out of a building that it had just collapsed into what better <laughs> <laughs> now when with with your campaign and your style of play is is yours a heavy magic is it a light magic um is you know everybody listens to the live play podcast where you know the character walks into a store and walks out with you know whatever magic item they want or whatever magic item is available uh do you have that that availability or is it really just what they're able to find or come across um it's a mixture of the two uh so the way that i've tried to make it is that obviously the more money you have the more likely you are to be able to somehow research or come across uh, a magical item of some report um the the way that it varies obviously it's dependent on when people have uh, magical knowledge like how likely they are to try and teach it which is why there are various different schools for that kind of thing but they are like a high class society kind of thing it's not available to your commoner with the exception of maybe like magical potions and such that is the way that i tend to play it although magic is fairly common it, it can be quite an expensive thing okay a little bit about your world um, you know, is it, is it like a typical fantasy world? Is there something unique about it? Um, I would say it's your typical fantasy world. Um, I, I, I mean, this is another point of doing like a homebrew. 
uh, you get to create your own maps, and that's one of the things that I went to do. Like, I made a massive world map, uh, and then once I decided on which kind of continent uh, I was looking at doing, I then focused a, a separate map on that, and then like, you keep going in and in uh, just as much as you want until you have enough detail. Uh, but I think as you're building a world map, you start to have ideas anyway for various different things like uh whether or not you want a specific continent to be like more of a mountainous or jungle environment whether there's going to be a massive desert like toward the equator of the world you know and you start building that law just based off of generic zone stereotypes so is is the world very much your creation or do the players have uh you know some input in how things are in the world. And I'll give you an example. When Raz and I were starting up one of the campaigns, um, he had a class, um, which was it, it, just a wizard, but it was part of a group called Relic Hunters. And Relic Hunters, in my mind, when I was creating them, were just uh, these individuals who went out and went into this area to search for magical relics. And our first session, all of a sudden he throws out that he's part of the Relic Hunters Guild. Now, I had never created this guild, but the idea was was so good and it fit so perfectly with what I was creating that this guild now became incorporated into the rest of the world. Number one, I may have to uh, appropriate that title of Relic Hunters <laughs> Guild. Uh, you know, that whole concept idea is awesome. Uh, number two, yes, uh, to an extent. Um, when it comes to the lay of the land, um, obviously in terms of specific like generic biomes or maybe like city locations, for the most part, all of the city locations I've pretty much set in stone, at least the major ones. Uh, there's nothing to stop a player from going, hey, I want to be from X type of uh, settlement that's maybe like a size smaller or something like that. And I will just find, like, an area, depending on how they describe it, to fit. Likewise, if they want to link themselves to an organization that I hadn't heard of, great, go for it, by all means. It's not going to hinder me in what, like, in any method whatsoever. Um, the way that I think the limit is, though, is that if a player turns around and says an example that is maybe... Um, conjoining with uh an issue that or like a, a city that i've already made that could come in uh, to a bit of a like issue but to be honest it doesn't happen as much as you'd expect uh, in fact it rarely happens at all um and even then there's nothing stopping you from going well it's a multicultural city perfectly fine you know th there's always ways around those kind of scenarios are you uh are you open to all races in your campaign for D&D or do you do you have that one particular race or maybe half a dozen that you uh, particularly say, say don't? <laughs> yeah, I would say uh yes, but uh is the phrase for that, but uh, I am open to all races um to an extent. The way that you have to look at it realistically though is all right, there are going to be some races that you're just not going to see as commonly in the current world as they are. Or maybe they come from another plane. or And for that reason, you then look at, okay, well, 
they can be played, but we need to make a few alterations slightly to try and make it like a little bit realistic in terms of the backstory, like maybe how they came to this plane or um, whereabouts their kind of uh, village or like town would be. Um, is it still there? Why is it there? Why is it not there? Um, and, and just lore build around what they want to do because effectively although i turn around and say oh i built this massive world it's not like i've gone over every single detail of course yeah uh, the, the players can turn around and go hey i want to do this and i'm like sure no problem but yeah i was more looking at like for me i'm just going to throw it out there and you know i'll take the hate mail if we get any on it i don't like turtles um <laughs> I'm not happy with them. My girlfriend will hate you for that. <laughs> and I'm sure. and I'm being just, you know, I'm just throwing one out there. But I it I just I'm sure somebody out there has said to themselves at one point, I really want to be a kung fu panda, but that doesn't mean I want it in the in the game with the setting or the tone of the adventure. Um some things just don't jive. And for me, and as the storyteller, I want to give you this big world, but if I tell you it's a human-centric based campaign, I'm doing that because the story and the overall goal that i want to do is you, you, it's easier if you're a human now am i going to let you do what you want yeah most 99 percent of the time but if you come at me with something that's so far-fetched i i'm gonna you know sometimes i have to say you can do it but you're gonna suffer and and i'm sorry that that's gonna happen but when you see the world when you see the campaign you're gonna realize i'm trying to help you by not letting you play that one class or that one thing um I don't know. So homebrew, you know, the control is there, but I was just wondering if you've if you have limits on what you allowed, like evil characters. Do you allow evil in the campaign, or do you say, "Listen, I can't play. You just can't play evil." Um, I I definitely understand where you're coming from, and yeah, I I have limits on a lot of things, um, uh, especially uh, specifically when we talk about races or alignment. Um, I'm perfectly fine with people, uh being a specific race or a specific alignment that maybe isn't so common or um has uh, a physical um what's the word i'm looking for a physical like repercussion for playing it mm -hmm. that is perfectly fine because at the end of the day my goal is to make this albeit a fantasy world as realistic as possible in terms of scenarios so if you start playing a goblin and you walk into a human settlement of course they're all going to look at you and go oh god, that's a goblin, let's kill it. Because that's what they're like. Um, and likewise, if you start as an evil character and you just run around murdering people, of course at some point the lore is going to try and catch up to you and you're going to get arrested. Yep. Now, speaking of evil characters, have you ever had anyone play an evil character well where they weren't overtly going around murdering everyone and you know starting plagues and wars and everything else but somebody whose character was definitely selfish and self-centered and was in it only for themselves and was able to function with the group because they saw the group as aiding them in their their goal 100 percent, yes uh I, i've got a couple of examples that i can think to right off the top of my head um one of them was uh, a warlock who had effectively uh, taken the route of, I want power, but I want to do it in a way that I have more control, um, and decided that he would effectively become a master of whispers of sorts, o over a process of time, of course. Um, but obviously the party sees this as him trying to negatively influence people, 
which causes people in the party to go, hang on a minute, this maybe isn't okay. And it builds a good dialogue in between the two types of characters because you have two viewpoints facing off against each other. And there are going to come points where they're going to go, okay, we're going to stop bickering amongst ourselves and start focusing on maybe a common enemy or forming like some kind of temporary like truce between them and that happens quite frequently actually um basically every time you throw any kind of creature or encounter against them um unless they are quite confident in their own skills then more often than not going to turn around and go yeah okay we'll, we'll focus on this and we'll get back to our quarreling later um but for the most part yeah it, it works out quite well but you have to play it as consequences uh, and you have to stick to them because otherwise it's like oh i'm just gonna let you get away with whatever you want yeah i mean and that's that's always the hardest part i will say that i've had one person play an evil character well and yes i'm looking at you raz even though you can't see it oh um, <laughs> and it, it wasn't it, that evil well <laughs> i'm not joking i don't i don't want to go down that road i'm joking <laughs> um but every time I, I've come across other people trying to play an evil character, like they will always take a contrary opinion to the rest of the party. And it, it just leads to, to friction. So I've, I've kind of gone away, gone the way of, yeah, I'm not running an evil group. Um, and there are some things that, that players with evil characters will find that they are okay with that. Just me personally, as the GM am not, um, I I never want players to be torturing anything. Um, that's just something that bothers me. I don't like it. And I, I can't have players doing that. They start going down that road. I'm like, look, this is just going to end badly for you. Yeah, uh, I, I can completely understand that. It's the same idea as uh, committing... I, I don't want to say like real crimes or serious crimes because then like people who just straight up kill things albeit creatures um like it's taken the wrong way in that regard but the, the same idea that people will for example take something that is uh, a sexually explicit uh, encounter and turn around and shun that um because it, it just doesn't sit right with a lot of people especially if it uh, reaches a little bit too close to home um but it does bring up an interesting point of that contrast between uh, what is and isn't okay within D and D, uh, or any uh, tabletop role playing game. So, do you have your session zero where you kind of lay out? Here's where we're going to go with everything, and here's some of the themes I'm going to cover and touch upon. Does anybody have any issues with this? Um, I tend to lean more towards uh, giving them a session zero where it's things that I expect them to not do. And then warn them that anything that is uh, edging toward that uh, is going to have heavy consequences. Likewise, anything that is relatively good could also potentially have the same kind of consequence. It might not necessarily be in the same vein, because at the end of the day, it is a choice, it is an action. But at least that way, the, the players themselves understand that if they edge to one way or another it could backfire exactly so you've got 
five players right now and you've had what is it nine different players yeah. um the most i've had at the table at once is eight players uh wow. and that was with one that was inactive but still at the table so yeah it got pretty hectic that was at the point where i was like you know what i'm gonna start cutting the numbers down <laughs> Now, I mean, not singling out any players, but do you have players that you look forward to gaming with just because of what they bring, how they bring their character, how they portray their character, and, and just what they end up doing? Oh, for sure. Um, I, I have some players that are much more interactive than others. Um, I think some of my newer players uh, are still struggling with some of the concepts of trying to like describe how they do something rather than just telling me that they do it uh obviously that depends on a player's individual mood at the time but for the most part there are some people who based on their role play style um i look forward to seeing more of but at the same time i also look forward to seeing more of specific characters to see like how they're going to interact how they are going to progress through this story because a lot of the time, although the actions can suit the character quite well, to everyone else at the table, they just seem absurd, and therefore it makes it funny. Yeah, and this this leads me kind of to our our major topic that we want to cover with uh, with this episode, and that is the the concept of stage fright. Now, we're going to look at this mostly from the the DM the GM side of the screen, uh, but it applies to players as well, especially new players. I personally am not as super outgoing as Raz is. Uh, he is able to to jump into character and and do the voices and just go full tilt, arms waving, all kinds of stuff. I tend to be a little bit more subdued, even though I've been doing this for quite a few years. It's it's not easy all the time to to put yourself out there to to allow yourself. Uh, to in your mind feel like you're going to be ridiculed for making a silly voice when you're not yeah. trying to make a silly voice. So how do you prepare to get out there in front of these people? I mean, some of them probably friends, so it's a little bit easier, but especially with, with new players uh, that you're in front of for the first time, some of them might have tons of experience with other, with other DMS. What do you do? How do you feel before that start before that game starts? I mean, firstly, I think it is like you have to acknowledge that uh, at some point you might feel nervous about it. it it's the same as public speaking. Um, at some point you're going to go, oh, God, I'm going to sit there in front of several people and just panic. Um, that's the fear. But in reality, I think uh, a lot of the preparation that I do um, in one form or another, whether it's just practicing a voice or like mulling over what's going to happen, you know, like rereading notes, figuring out in advance, like what I might do. Um, and realizing that all of that isn't set in stone. That's a good way to prepare. However, the, the only way that you're really going to get over that kind of anxiety is practice. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to be amazing right off the bat. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, if you go into a situation where you need to talk, take it slow. Uh, th there is nothing wrong with checking a book to like look at your notes or, you know, 
having those little moments of stalling is perfectly fine. Um, there are times where I will often pretend to just write stuff down in a, a notepad. When in actual I'm gonna fact, have to steal that one. Yeah, in actual fact, I am just constantly racking my brain, going, "Oh God, what am I gonna do next?" When I when I do goblin, I come in strong. <laughs> Max not strong. So I think, what little man look like? And he looked big to me inside his own head. So I do goblin voice. I do them all. So yeah, for me, it, um, I was an actor when I was a kid. Uh, not on anything big, but I did a lot of, you know, theater and stuff in college and yeah. horsed around a lot. So I, I, but I get exactly where Rich is coming from. And, the, you know, people that don't do the voices have other gifts and skills um encounter you know better in encounters better management of of uh, situations as far as tactics of you know players first and and balancing encounters and things it's it's all just what you bring to the table and i think what the the great part about tabletop role playing and i'm sure zeb I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it um is that not every group's looking for the same thing you could be you could be playing with a group where you all of a sudden you pull that you know that goblin voice or you know, you throw an accent out there and they look at you and say, I'm not here for you. No, I want to roll dice. I want to build shit up. I want to find stuff. I want to explore. I want to puzzle solve. Um, there's so many things that make up a great campaign. And not everybody sits down at the table for the same experience. And I think gauging what they're looking for in that session zero um, is so important for, listen, this is what I can do for you. This is what I present. And this is the expectation I have, hopefully, from what you bring to the table back. Um, I think groups find their level and I think DMs and storytellers do the same thing. I, you know, that, that hesitancy, if you're hesitant about the story, then yeah, maybe there's a preparation issue or, you, you know, maybe they hit you with a left. I can tell you, I've had two games in my 40 years, literally two games get derailed because some guy decided, one of them decided to make breakfast for people that he wasn't supposed to. It threw me for such a loop. No, I'm not joking. Like I'm running Conan D20 from Morbius when it first comes out. And I'm playing with a guy who has been a Conan nut like myself since we were kids. And he's playing a barbarian and not a Cimmerian, but a barbarian. So I'm like, okay, here we go. And he runs upon farmers who are starving and we're going to eat his horse. And instead of hacking these peasants to shit, to just shreds, like, I'm like, okay, it's going to, we're, we're getting it on right here. He says, you know, I got some extra flour and stuff. I'm going to make them breakfast. I'm like, what? Yeah, th these kids are starving. I can't leave like this. This isn't right. I, I didn't know what to do. I'm like, no, this whole encounter is supposed to be, and don't get me wrong, I'm not planning encounters to the point where I know how many guys. I've got hitch points written down. I've got their, but no, I'm kind of winging a lot of that. But when he literally said to himself, he dismounts his horse and makes breakfast, I canceled the game. I'm like, we're done tonight and I need you all to go home. I, and I've never done that before, but it happens. So yeah, I, I think that everybody finds their levels and, you know, I think GMs do, their skills are so widespread in different areas that, you know, the, the group, the group wants a good story. And if you provide that, no matter how you do it, I think they're help, They're happy. Well, yes, of course. There you go. <laughs> I completely understand. Uh, but you don't have to do like silly certainly as a player yeah. uh, you don't have to do silly voices to get your point across uh that's just the way that i feel comfortable doing it uh because as a kid i used to do a lot of voice acting and mimicry uh, mostly okay. from just like tv shows uh like i'd see a, a character on tv and say it was like mickey mouse and just be like oh hey there uh-huh that's actually pretty good yeah and then you'd take it mouth. creepier and just go you look 
mighty scared. If only there was somewhere you could hide. (laughs) (laughs) It just goes from there, and you you just have fun with it. Um, But I I think one of the key points is there is no right or wrong way to play D&D. And that comes from both a DM's perspective and a player's perspective. As a player, you can describe your action as like thoroughly and as intently as you want you can like act it out uh almost like you're bordering on lapping uh or you could just say what you do and say why you do it um maybe try and describe a little bit of what happens but that level of comfortability only comes with experience and time um and not everyone is going to develop at the same rate and at the same way as everyone else. And, and that's perfectly fine. But yeah. Yeah. One of the tips you brought up that uh, I think is good for, especially for starting uh, DMs is just having those notes and you, you don't have to have detailed notes where you read out your entire description. Oh God, no, my notes are a mess. Yeah. I tried to do that when I first started, but what I find now is a couple of bullet points on an area. And then I just let the moment decide how much I'm going to describe and, and what the players decide they're going to investigate as they're, they're looking in this room. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I just read this big, long description, they're trying to parse out every little bit of it. Whereas the key bullet points just allow me to expand depending on their interest level. I mean, I think that's a really good, important point to note. Uh, obviously my notes don't have everything. Uh, they don't have every kind of uh, detail about a city or scenario down to the letter. And 95% of what's going to happen in your campaign is going to come based on your D- uh, on your DM. No, based on your players uh, <laughs> and their interaction with whatever world you're portraying. For that reason, it's very easy for players to somehow detract from whatever you're currently like showing them uh and get off like off track off story get derailed that actually happened recently to me uh, in one of my campaigns whereby on a whim uh one of my players used a like secret bird call just going and i took that as an opportunity to just be like oh okay so uh, a hooded character comes up behind you and like taps you on the shoulder and goes was that the signal? And I, everyone is instantly just off on this separate path, which is perfectly fine. Obviously, it's my doing, but I had no plan for that. Uh, and in that scenario, uh, we went and did like maybe two hours worth of uh, sidetrack story. And each of the players got like more and more curious about it because they were both unsure about what's going to happen uh and both intrigued at the same time so you just kind of roll with the punches as it were certainly as a dm uh, and don't be afraid to let your players go off track if they want to like they can explore the world the world effectively evolves and revolves around them that's great yeah no i mean players always will will decide to go left when you've planned for going right oh, yeah. uh, so, so again to to combat this this stage fright of you know i'm gonna mess this up completely 
Um, do you have uh, sort of like side things that you can pull out if they decide they're going to go this way? I mean, for me, it's, I have a list of names. They're just random names. Yeah. They're not tied to anything at the moment. But if the players decide, you know what? I want to go in this, this shop. All right. I've now got a, a proprietor for this shop. Here's it. Here's what it is. Yeah. Names are definitely the bane of my existence when it comes to DMing because the amount of time that I'll just be in the middle of focusing on what's happening and be like, oh, this is a perfect time to introduce this character, start describing him and then go, oh, damn, I've not thought of a name. It's surprising how much that happens. So I've got a number of sheets, actually. Uh, in fact, let me grab my. Bear with me one second. There's a great sequence from a video game called Borderlands while you're getting that. And there's a, a character called Tiny Tina and she wants to run um, Mazes and Mutants, which is obviously a parody of Dungeons and Dragons. And when they ask her what the name of the boss is, this giant skeleton that she's explained to everybody, she says, Mr. Bony Pants Guy? <laughs> like, she, they nail right into the fact that every storyteller runs into a name issue at some point. <laughs> right. Okay. I read about somebody that they don't even bother with, with fantasy names. They're like, you know what? Five minutes after I've given the name, the players have forgotten it and they don't care. So if that guard comes running out, that's Bob. You kill him, the next one can come up, that's Bob too. Like, they don't worry about the names. Are you trying to say Bruce? Hello, Bruce. Anyway, I'm saying Bob. No, I know, but Bruce, well, <laughs> let the joke go there. You killed it. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but, no, like, I, I've got my uh, my little folder. Um, th this is just, like, one of a few tools that I use for uh, DMing. Um but inside this folder, I've got a number of pieces of paper um, that I use as, like, just key things to, like, remember or that I can pull out in a specific scenario. Um, the first one is, like, a massive page um, that just says, like, remember in big letters at the top. And it's got, like, uh, what happens if you roll nat ones? Because early on, we agreed uh, within the party that if you roll a nat one on a d20... Um, it is referred to as a critical fail and you hit an ally within five feet of the target if there is one there regardless of whether or not it's melee or ranged and i wasn't even the one that made that up like that was entirely the players um uh, because i think on a first game uh like first or second game one of my players when i rolled a nat one asked the question of oh does he hit himself and i was like if you want him to. Uh, and since then, I, I made it a point that, like, if this happens, like, if I do this now, it's going to be solidly in the rules until, like, one of us goes, okay, this was a bad idea. The uh, nat ones mean either you hit yourself or you hit a nearby ally. Uh, and since then, it's kind of worked. Um, I mean, we haven't, like, not liked it. Uh, we've also got, like, flanking, uh, which I've done. Uh, a little reminder about concentration checks, because I'm constantly forgetting who has what concentration checks up. Um, and then an old thing about uh, opposed skill checks, which, by the way, never do them. If you can avoid opposed skill checks between players, just don't do them. Um, Roleplay them. Yeah, I, I hate that. I You know, I don't often have players trying to do things to one another, but there's always, you know, I'm going to tell them this. 
and well, the other part is like, I'm going to do an insight. I want to see if he's lying. Yeah. Well, the whole point of those checks are purely for interactions between uh, a player and the DM. They are not for interactions between individual players. Uh, and I think that's a lot of people that, or that's a thing that a lot of people miss. Um, yeah. yeah. They always, they always want to, you know, check on what another player is doing mm -hmm. and you end up with this rolling back and forth. So in addition to uh, that, I also have uh, a slightly expanded um, wild uh, magic table uh, where instead of it having 50 separate options, it has 100 um, because I have a number of features that use this table um, that is effectively wild magic, just rebranded. Um, I have a really fancy NPC generation uh, chart along with just things like motivations, like whether or not they're lovers or not. Um, let's see, what else have I got? I've got a, a series of papers that say, uh, they just list generic uh, shop names. So like general stores, blacksmiths, like Fletchers, alchemists, uh, like magic stores, etc. Um, I have like a massive list of names that I can just cross out once I'm done with them. Um, I have a old player reference sheet, uh, which I wrote up for a bunch of my players that basically explains what all the conditions are, um, what uh, advantage and disadvantage is, like really basic stuff that you expect most players to know. Um, I've got uh, a set of papers on randomizing uh, town NPCs and their motivations. And then finally, uh, I also have a um, an arcana, uh, which is, uh, if you're not familiar with it, uh, arcanas are portions of uh, a tarot deck. Um, so you'll have like the major arcana and then uh, different suits. Uh, a little mm -hmm. similar to like, a regular deck of cards, but um, in this regard, I used it as a method of fortune telling for inspiration. And basically, you would, at the start of a session, uh, make an excuse for the players to like do this, either retconning it to the previous instance that they were, say, like grouped up together and not fighting, or doing it at a safe moment uh, at the start of the session, and you just read off like a couple fortunes and basically if they interacted in such a way with another player they would get inspiration uh and that was basically how it worked and it helped them diversify their player experience and their character experience but it also meant that it's perfectly fine if they didn't want to like go down that route they could just play the character as is and every so often if it cropped up it was beneficial to them. Yeah, that, I mean, that sounds great. And I think, you know, to, to get rid of that that stage fright, especially for, again, for the, the DM, the GM, is preparation. Whether mm. it's, you know, fully detailed out, whether it's quick notes, just so you feel comfortable when your players are in front of you that, you know, you have what you need right there and readily available. And, yeah. you know, that's, that's huge. You know, so, again, 
especially for the the new DM just starting out, it is sometimes, you know, very frightening. I, I think that's a really good point. Um, I, I would say that certainly if you're newer, you often find a sense of security in having uh, a, a lot more prepared um, and knowing more about the topic yourself. The same, like, if you were studying or something like that. If you can physically tell someone else what the topic is about, it's going to be a bit more easy on you. Yeah. All right. So we're going to get to the final part of our our uh, show for today. And uh, we call this session Ray versus Raw, which is rules as intended versus rules as written. And with this is there's no right answers. This is not trying to memorize the rule book. This is stuff that might come up during a game and how do you handle it? And with Rime of the Frost Maiden being out, uh, Raz and I decided we're going to do some some winter themed questions for you. Okay. All right. So first one is you have uh let's say you're you're doing something in 10 towns you know this is an area that gets really harsh winters to begin with and there's you know winter weather all the time so your players are coming across a frozen lake or a frozen river whatever it might be right and they turn suddenly turn to you and go all right i want to pull my ice skates out and skate across this sure. you've never put ice skates in your world what do you tell them uh, I ask them how they are making these ice skates. Uh, because if I've not physically given the item to them, sure, it would be fun to just let them go and do it. But I think what's even more fun would be to let them try and figure out creative ways to create uh, like a f- set of ice skates effectively. Like somebody might, uh, a mage might uh, use an ice cantrip to try and like freeze ice into the shape of a blade on the bottom of their shoes. Um, and then go off and try and skate, and obviously you make a a roll out of it, something that they are like struggling to do, and then that itself could maybe fall into one of them falls into the ice, and then suddenly ah, it's a rush to try and get everyone to safety. Um, so I don't necessarily think there is a, a, a wrong answer, should you say, um, but the way that I prefer to do it is to try and get them to be creative. All right. Second question. I'm going to let Raz do the third question, but I'm going to do the second question. <laughs> I don't even know what the third question. What was the third question? Oh, the third question is what you used to get hit with. Hate? <laughs> <laughs> Anger? Winter, winter themed. <laughs> oh, all right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, our, our second question. Uh, again, dealing with winter theme, uh, you know, food is not going to be in abundance in, you know, say an Arctic area. and mm-hmm. The DM's guy's got all kinds of things for foraging and everything else. But I don't know if you've come across this, but I've had players come up with, you know, all right, we've just killed this manticore. Um, We need food. We're going to skin it and eat it. What creatures do you make edible in yours? Now, oddly enough, in my own campaign, um, I actually run a... Uh, a a system where they can loot uh, or like harvest or um basically like kill creatures for their components um which could be like physical rations it could be the skin uh it could be like a portion of like a claw or something like that that they can later turn into a weapon um but it gives like an extra little bit of like crafting element to it 
unfortunately, it has resulted in the side effect of them walking around with a massive bag full of rotting flesh. But that's on them, not on me. I swear blind. <laughs> um, but yeah, at the end of the day, um, if they are wanting to kill a creature, um, providing it is like physically, uh, I suppose like sound, like a, a beast creature, and it's not like incorporeal, like a shade. Sure, go for it. Let them do it. <laughs> so how how far to the extreme do you let this go? I mean. So, well, all right, we'll say manticores, they're edible. You can eat them. Yeah. But then you get a sphinx. You know, at what point is, you're now eating a super intelligent creature. Uh, if you're if allowing they, that. If they really it, wanted to go for it, I I don't see why not. Uh, it's it's going to have implications and, like, consequences. Um, but... There are also like benefits to that side. Obviously, if you need to have it in a pinch, great, go for it. Um, but if you were to take like a dragon or something like that, um, dragons themselves can be very, very intelligent creatures. They can speak. Uh, some of them, uh, you might give them the ability to shapeshift, um, certainly depending on their age, uh, into a humanoid form. Um, but they have very valuable scales. They have the ability to like breathe. Uh, a specific type of uh like breath weapon why couldn't you make those portions of loot i i'm not i'm not doubting that i yeah. for me it would say how how at what point does it become the the creature eating it is is now taboo versus Ooh. uh you know just being a, you know it's not a cow anymore you know, all right, so we did Manticore, that's fine. All right, we've gone to Sphinx. They're super intelligent. They're highly intelligent. They have personalities, everything right, else. I, I see you know, what you're, you're allowing that. Yeah, take it to this point. If the party was in a winter storm, got caught in a blizzard, and somebody was already wounded, and they ate him, would that be a problem? <laughs> um, I, That's a good question. I'm only asking for a friend, because it kind of came up in a campaign once. <laughs> I think certainly because it's a, a party member and you're talking about taking the uh, the life of another party member, unless it's voluntary, um, that certainly means that you are forcing another player to re-roll the character. Well, um, it would have to be consensual on that point, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, however, it's hard to say. Like, yeah. I, I think it would have to be a situation-by-situation -situation basis. If you can justify um, that creature having resources that are required I, I think at some point there will come a point where it can be done but it's not necessarily going to be the most pleasant experience for the party uh for example the creature might start protesting uh and saying oh god no please don't and right. you know um and like maybe they don't kill it immediately and it's like screaming in pain but these are ways that you can try and like tug on your players like heartstrings and like be like hey this action has consequences you're fucking up stop doing it and if they keep going it's not my fault so then it becomes on them yeah uh th this is why i like uh consequence based uh campaigns because i i can literally say anything that you do in this world has a consequence from 
choosing to accept a quest to choosing to ignore it. You know, life moves on. And uh, to an extent, the same will be true with like creatures that they come across. They are going to go off and live their own life. Who knows what will happen to them? Um, they might be encountered by another party who might make a different decision. Either way, there is a, a resolution happening at this point in time, and hopefully it's a nice one. You're a man after my own heart. I do a lot of moral dilemmas when I run, so it's, um, you know, it's, it's not always the most heroic events that happen, but sometimes players just put themselves or the situation is out there and they have to deal with it and it's a struggle, but exactly. Um, I, you know, I think it, it, it breeds a lot of history into the character, it breeds life into them and takes them from that two dimensional sort of, yeah, I'm playing this elf and this elf is now level six and it's, this has done a couple things. And I think it also takes away the, the player going, judging them, their character by how many items they own or how, or the magic items that are on them. Right. To me, it's, Oh, we lived through that. Oh, what we, I remember when we did this and we had to, hunt our own yeah. our old friend down or a guy who stole from us. We had to, you know, make him pay for it or, you know, whatever it is. I, I, I think that it's good to have a good balance because you need some heroics in there as well. They need to feel like they're doing like they're winning and they're, do, they're, they're, they're succeeding. You don't want to make it so heavy that they're like, Oh God, it's a drudge. But um, no, I'm, I'm all for consequences in games. I, I agree with that hundred yeah. percent. It definitely adds uh, a bit of gravitas and, uh, import to a, a specific scenario that makes it stick around in the head a little bit longer. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, sure, it's alright to say, oh, do you remember that time where we slayed that dragon? But to turn around and say, oh god, do you remember that time where that dragon almost ate us? That comes across to us, uh, or certainly to myself, as something that a player can go, yeah, I, I loved experiencing this, and I was excited enough to remember it. Excellent. And the last one is we were talking about cold improvised weapons. If you had, and again, it's, this is all for fun. If you had to rate an ice ball, how, what would you rate it? D4, D6? How, how Sorry, would you if, I, if I had to, what? So if somebody grabs a big thing of, of snow oh, and they right. rub it just for a second. <laughs> it depends. It becomes, like, what are, yeah. what are we talking here? Like, are we talking just throwing it at someone else? Are we talking yeah, like sure. throwing it, missing, and then having it like roll down a hill? No, no, we're talking about literally chucking one at a at a at a peasant in the street. Ooh. Guy gives him some lip. He picks up a ice ball, and the character just whips it. Personally, is, is that... I, I would have said that's more along the lines of uh, probably the equivalent to a, like the range version of an unarmed strike. Okay. Um, albeit, I probably lean more towards like dagger roll, so like a d four. D4, like a sling, uh, like a sling yeah, bolt or something. Yeah, maybe add like a, a dex bonus or something like that. You know, nice. <laughs> um, just to like lend it a little bit more oomph as it hits the target. Um, but no, like uh, the moment you said like throwing a, a, a small like ball of ice or something like that, I was like, oh, but if they pick up the ball and then they throw it and miss and it starts rolling down a oh. hill <laughs> and it just becomes bigger. And it takes out a neighborhood. Bigger and bigger. <laughs> All of a sudden, you've got like peasants running in the distance, like ah, which is what everybody wanted anyway. Of course, we all I mean, wanted our peasants. Why running. else would you like throw a ball of ice down a snowy hill? It's not for. <laughs> oh, that's funny.
All right, so we've now reached the end of our first episode. Oh, in that case, just before you continue, uh, guess what? I remember the name of the tabletop game thing. Oh, please hit us. Yeah. Um, are any of you familiar with the Fate system? Yes. yes. Yeah, like Fate and obviously like Fate Advance. Um, that, to me, was like one of the weirdest like introductions and spins to... Uh, uh, well a tabletop system like certainly having come from uh D, because you had all these like action points that you could like use to influence someone to maybe try and twist what they're doing into a like a different narrative um and i, I loved it I, I absolutely loved it um it, it's yeah. a good I, I love the fate system it's one of those systems where you have to have somebody who's really familiar with it running it and yeah somebody who can who can improvise on the fly very easily mm. because it is not a you know all right i'm gonna roll my insight now it's you know how do you do things and how do you go about it uh you know for example i played in in one which was a, a science fiction one where i was essentially a giant squirrel but i didn't like heights because i'd grown up on uh, a space station but what i was good at was dealing with uh air ducts and tunnels and stuff like that. So something happened and all of a sudden everybody scatters to get out of this building. Well, because of my natural instinct, I ran for the air duct and all of a sudden, you know, the, the GM is, is trying to improvise me suddenly running through the air ducts instead of fleeing the building, yeah, but it yeah. all fit the character. And, you know, there were points being, being generated because of this. Yeah. I, I completely understand that. And, uh, I, <laughs> I personally, like keep getting flashbacks uh to <laughs> but whatever the hell that um uh tabletop game uh that sam did for the one shot of critical role and uh just the raccoons from that description uh where they were all just like race car drivers and he was just making up rules as you go i, I feel like that is more reminiscent of fate in the sense that certainly of the role play side uh in the sense that your roleplay isn't really limited in any form, and it, in a lot of respects, everyone at the table is in some form a DM, uh, in the sense that they are able to basically hand a point to someone else and just go, hey, I will give you this if you decide to ever so slightly alter the view of your actions and maybe go from being, you know what, I'm going to try and save the day to cause a little bit of chaos. And those kind of scenarios where you can persuade someone just by like dangling a little bait on a hook, I do quite like. Uh, certainly from a tabletop perspective. Yeah, they definitely make it interesting. Mm. Okay, so we have been talking with Sebastian King, uh, who goes by Pocket GM. Indeed. And Sebastian, Seb, anything you want to plug before we uh, end the episode? Uh, just for the time being, I will plug my Twitter handle, which is surprise surprise at pocket gm on twitter um whilst i have other social media and that kind of aspects they aren't really relative or like relevant to the podcast that we're on at the moment um and if i want you to know about them they'll be on twitter all right uh so that is the end of our first episode i'm rich i'm raz and we will catch you next time thanks for joining everybody good night Good night. Good night. You have been listening to the Bardic College Behind the Screens. 
If you'd like to support us, you can click the link in the episode description. Or, if you'd like additional content, you can follow us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thebardiccollege. If you are interested in following us, or you would like to be on our show, you can find us on Facebook at The Bardic College, or on Twitter at Bardic underscore the, or you can email us at thebardiccollege at gmail.com.